you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. brand new series entitled Prodigal, and it's going to be a four-week series, and to be honest with you guys, we're going to be stepping into some sensitive space here, wrestling with doubt, deconstruction, and the journey of faith. You see, there is a phenomena happening in the Western church that right now seems to be spreading like wildfire in communities of faith like ours. In studies just before the pandemic, it was reported that the best estimates show that by the year 2050, over 42 million young people who grow up in a Christian environment will lose their faith. Other studies show that uh, before 2050, 176,000 churches in America will close their doors. 176,000. The earliest reports coming back from the pandemic was that church attendance across the United States um, was cut down by a third, and a majority of those people aren't coming back. What is going on? We are seeing people walk away from church, walk away from their faith, and ultimately walk away from Jesus entirely. Over the next four weeks, we're going to step into this sensitive space and begin having really important conversations about doubt, deconstruction, and this journey of faith. My hope here is that when we're done, our church can have the tools to navigate those fragile moments where someone is experiencing a crisis of faith and be able to walk with them through it to the other side. I want to start today's message kind of with a quick recap of the story we just landed here in Luke 24. And if I may, I want to do this from the perspective of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and the one who's not named, which if you're the one who's not named, you're kind of bummed. Honestly, like Cleopas gets to be in here, but you don't, but nonetheless. Um, So kind of from their perspective. So I want you to imagine you're a Jew and all your life, you've been waiting for this one who's called the Messiah. That every single time you gather in synagogue, there's teachings and readings about the one who would come and free your people. You, in your heritage of faith, you're aware of the stories of your people being brought out of Egypt and then brought out of Babylon, and you find yourself again under the thumb of an oppressor. This time, it's the Roman Empire. And you've seen brothers and sisters, people, uh, your people, killed, oppressed, overly taxed, and there's this longing in your heart for the Messiah. One day you get word about a homeless rabbi from the town of Nazareth, and in your mind you think, Nazareth, right? It had, its reputation precedes it, and that nothing really good comes out of Nazareth. And so already you're skeptical about this homeless rabbi, right, coming around proclaiming he's the Messiah. You're like another crackpot. Here we go. 
But suddenly he comes to town and you go and you listen to him speak and your heart is compelled. You realize that this is more than just a man. He seems to be in tune with God. And not only that, you hear the stories of what this man can do. Around this man, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the dead are raised to life. You know the religious people hate his guts. But the poor, the oppressed, the outcast, the rejects love him fiercely. And his crew, those who follow him, is not the all-star list you would expect around the Messiah. It is a ragtag group of fishermen, rejects, exiles, criminals, tax collectors, and the like. But you're compelled by this man. And you decide you want to follow him. And so you do. And you begin to feel hope rise in you as this man, Jesus, is doing things the Messiah would do. He's setting the, the captive free. He's loving the lost. And it feels like we're starting to gain momentum. The movement is gaining people, and it's gaining traction, and it's gaining momentum. And every city, they're expecting of Jesus. But when he shows up, crowds arrive just to hear this man speak. And it feels as if we're finally going to do it. We're going to overthrow the empire. Then on a Friday night, you get word that Jesus has been arrested and that he currently is in the hands of the religious leaders who had made promise that if they get their hands on him, he will die. Late Friday evening, you get the word that he has been killed, crucified. And with him go the dreams of your freedom. With him goes the hope of a new and better world moving forward. With him, your dreams die. And Saturday is terrible. You're rethinking again, how foolish could I be? I should have seen the signs. I should have known. I should have thought better. And this community is in turmoil. Those who followed him closely have all scattered and abandoned him. And the only thing holding this movement together is a handful of women who believe the words he said but are just as distraught as the rest of the community. Well, it's Sunday, and you decide it's time to ditch town. The dream's dead. The revolt's over, right? This, this outrising against the empire has finished. It's time to go home. We're going to wake our way to Emmaus. So you grab your buddy, who's unnamed, and you guys begin to make your way out. And on your way out, you decide, let's swing by the apostle's house and just give our love and say goodbye and we'll move on from there. So you walk into the room, and the room's chaotic. There seems to be this stir and this buzz, and you walk into the room and saying, what's going on? And they let you know, the woman went to the tomb this morning, and they say that he was gone, and that angels spoke to them. And in Luke 24, it tells us that everyone in the room thought that the, what the women were speaking was nonsense. They're like, stop it. It's over. He's dead. It's done. This, let's not make up any stories. It is what it is is and two of the disciples peter and john race back to the tomb and they confirm that he is not there but they do not see him either they begin to assume grave robbers or something of the like has taken him and so there you and your buddy begin to wake your way back to emmaus heartbroken lost distraught disappointed defeated and so this is where we find these two disciples on the road to emmaus 
Starting in verse 13, it says this, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they're making their way down the road, they can't help but feel disappointed, discouraged, disillusioned. And they begin to kind of process out loud, what even happened? It's, we were going, it was going great, it seemed to be going good, then all of a sudden, it's all over. Brothers and sisters, many have walked this road to Emmaus. Many have journeyed down the place where they were disappointed and disillusioned by this man, Jesus. You see, he, you thought he was somebody, but he turned out to be somebody altogether different. And there are all sorts of reasons we go down this road. I'll never forget sitting with somebody who I'd spent years training and talking with and encouraging on how to follow Jesus. And one day, them sitting across me and telling, them, telling me, I just can't seem to believe in Jesus anymore. A lot of you know that for many years I did student ministry. And I wish I could tell you that, and every single one of them is following Jesus. But if I were honest, I'd say more than most of them have abandoned their faith. And though we keep loose connection over the years, most of them have utterly walked away from Jesus. And it's hard not to feel like a failure in that regard. And many of them went down the road and process of what's called deconstruction. Deconstruction is the process by which we begin to tear down the inner architecture of belief. Deconstruction is the process by which we begin to tear down our inner architecture of belief. If I could show you an example, this is what the process of deconstruction looks like. It first begins with construction. When you grow up, you are taught things about the world, about God, about who you are, and each of us have this uh, faith uh, family of origin, right? Some of you grew up in a Christian home and had, pa had parents who believers. Some of you did not grow up in a Christian home and did not have parents who believers, and all sorts of things along the spectrum, Right, and you learned everything about finance and food and how you do life and all this other stuff. And what's interesting to see is when couples get married and these two families of origin intersect, they realize that, oh, somebody actually did something different their whole life, right? And it's something as small as how to load the dishwasher or how you get toothpaste out of the can if you squeeze at the bottom or squeeze in the middle, kind of reckless kind of person, right? If they leave the cap a mess or don't, you know? There's different, these different things, and that's small and minuscule, but also large and important things about, do we talk about finances, budgeting, how we fight, how we argue, how we work through conflict, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you bring this thing in. And we do the same thing with our faith. We have this heritage of faith that we bring. Either no faith, there's none whatsoever. We, we are, we're, we're atheists in our believing or, or God's kind of a distant guy who kind of started this whole thing and hands off since then or anything really in between. And we bring that process with us. And then there comes a time where that process, that way of thinking, that worldview, that inner structure becomes tested. Where hard questions begin to be asked about what it is we believe, and we start to rethink that structure. For me, this primarily started to happen when I first entered into college. I grew up in a Christian home. 
Um, I wasn't a Christian for a majority of that time. I knew of Jesus. I liked him. I didn't have anything against the guy, but we were kind of doing our own things. And it wasn't until my junior year of high school that I came to know the Lord Jesus and submit my life underneath him. And never forget, my first day in college, it is as terrifying as they say, right? It's just like high school all over again. I'm there with my backpack, totally looking like a freshman, right? It's like you can tell the seniors and juniors because they come in like sweatpants, dragging in, barely made it, you know, crust in their eyes. And there I am, hair slate combed, backpack tight, ready to go. And I never forget, I walk into my Western Civilization class, and I'm putting, bringing out the brand new notebook, the pans, all excited, and the teacher comes in late to lecture. Kind of like swings open the door, introduces himself, tells us we're in Western Civilization, whatever the number was. And begins his lecture by saying this, there is no God. If you believe in a God, you are archaic in your thinking, and my goal is to teach you why that is and where these religions come from, etc." And I was like, did I sign up for the right class, right? Like, what on earth did I sign up for? Atheism 101? And I never forget that that was like one of the first moments where it was not just uh, shaken, or, but directly attacked. And throughout that class, he kept posing questions and ideas and all these different things that caused me to begin to wrestle with those realities. And then going to college, I began to have more and more friends who were atheists. And they would ask me the hard questions of, if there's a good God, why is there evil in the world? And if, if, if God was at the beginning of everything, who created God, etc., etc., etc. And so suddenly, this world that seemed to me black and white, there's God, he's real, he exists, becomes gray. And there's all these questions I now have to answer about who this God is that I follow. And I began the process of deconstruction, of figuring out why I believe what I believe. And so the process goes like this. You come with a construction, a way of viewing the world that is then tested, shaken. And so there's this process of figuring out, okay, why do I believe what I believe? And then from there is a reconstruction. And for some people, that reconstruction looks like faith. But for others, it looks like walking away. That when they've tested and wrestled with these questions, then the life they build on after that is there is no God, and that's my new construct. That's my new framework. This is what we're talking when it comes about, when we're having conversations around deconstruction. Now... There are two modes of deconstruction I want to lay before us today, and I'm borrowing greatly from Joshua Ryan Butler's work out of Tempe, Arizona. And the two phrases in the scriptures that I think describe these two ways of deconstruction are this. First, you have heard it said, but I say to you, i.e., Jesus. And the other way of deconstruction is that way of the serpent. Did God really say? Now, um, I want to address this first one first, because there's two types of deconstruction, one healthy, one unhealthy. Let's take Jesus's, you have heard it said. Jesus was often deconstructing the frameworks that the religious leaders had about who God is and what the scriptures say. We know this in the Sermon on the Mount because he says this, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, love your enemies, right? And he does this all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He sets up the structure that they have, and he says, this is what you've heard, but this is actually what the scriptures teach. Now, it's to be clear here, Jesus is not deconstructing the Old Testament. 
All throughout Jesus' ministry, he is saying, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, or it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus is a fan of the Old Testament. It fulfills all the, all, all the things in which he came here to do. However, what he is deconstructing is the bad teaching around it, done by the Pharisees and the religious leaders at the time. So he's saying, here's the framework you guys are dealing with. That's not the framework the scriptures teach. Here's the framework he's deconstructing. He's saying, here are those things. That's not true. Here's what's actually true. Instead, here's a proper interpretation of those passages. And so some helpful areas where I deconstructed um, in my walk with Jesus. My first was the view of the scriptures. I had what was called like a golden tablet from heaven view of the scriptures. That, that, that when the authors were writing it, it was like they were under a trance and they were just writing the things. That God, it was like God was writing the scriptures through them. Like he could took control over their hand and they couldn't control themselves, right? And this misunderstanding of the scriptures that it was kind of more of like a recipe book for life. And, you know, there's that acronym that's terrible. Don't ever use it here. B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Wrong. Don't say that. Don't do that. That's not the scriptures. That's not what the thing was, right? But that was the kind of framework that I had. And then when you actually get into the scriptures, you realize it's not that at all. It is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And it is this beautiful literary work where God partners with humans to create this beautiful text. And the whole thing is interwoven and hyperlinked to one another. And there's Easter eggs and all this other stuff all throughout this beautiful story. And so I had this simplistic understanding of, okay, I don't want to be angry. Go to all the passages about anger. But instead being, let's read the story and find this man Jesus compelling me to live and view life differently. And that the scriptures don't address anger, but it's within the context of a larger story. And it's not about just finding the things that need to, it's not like a fortune cookie that I just find and get little wisdom for the day, but it's a story I find myself embedded in that teaches me how to think about life. And it's not going to give me an answer about what college to go to or what person to marry or where I should live, but it's going to give me a way and a framework of thinking about how I view my life and the people around me and the larger part of the story my life plays. The next big area of this deconstruction for me was around women's roles in the church. I came from what's called a very strong complementarian church where women were kind of in the background but not really to be seen. They were given permission to do things like worship and stuff like that and do kids' ministry, but any of like the heavyweight ministry stuff and teaching and preaching and leading in those capacities was unheard of. And then came a time where I began to really wrestle with these passages and what they mean and 1 Timothy and et cetera. And if you're curious, you want to dive deep on this, on Mother's Day last year, I did a whole hour and like 15-minute teaching on this, so I don't have time. But I began to deconstruct that reality and begin to see, man, there's this beauty that God has made woven in the fabric of creation of men and women partnering together in God's project called His church. And how they're both deeply work with one another and in bed together and, and that, that the, the, the importance of women's voices in the church, in the areas of leadership, etc. Again, I have a whole hour and 15 minute talk there. But those are some areas where I healthily deconstructed bad ways of thinking in my mind. Now I want to talk about the other way. And this other way is the one we see more of. And it's this question of the serpent. Did God really say? So when one is an invitation to go deeper to find the actual intent, the other one is sowing seeds of doubt and uncertainty and the character of who God is and what the scriptures actually teach. And this is the mode that we see happening in our culture. 
The goal of this question is to sow seeds of doubt in the character of God and to distrust his word. It begins to separate the individual asking the questions from God. And we see this process really come to light in what's been known to be called progressive theology. It's, it's, it's beginning to um, spread largely in the mainline churches where there's this abandonment of orthodoxy around sexuality and a bunch of other issues and a full-on acceptance of a theology that's outside of what the teachings of the scriptures say. It's almost like, hey, we want to follow Jesus. We don't like what he said here, so we're going to set that aside. Like, did God really say this? We don't think so, so we're just going to set it aside. Now, before everyone's like, yeah, stick it to the progressive church, we do this on the other side as well. And the same way people take the teachings of Jesus about loving our enemies and about uh, the way that we treat the immigrants and how the church is to actually look, and they set those things aside because Jesus didn't really mean those things. He actually meant for us to be this way. And it kind of seeded in this nationalistic view and the church and nationalism have kind of come into bed in the same way. So it happens errors on both regards. But it's that same question of, did God really say? And then we interpret the scriptures how we want to or just simply disregard them. There's a famous story of Thomas Jefferson who uh, his Bible was actually in a museum where he took his Bible and just cut out the passages he didn't like. Physically just chopped it all up, said, you know, don't like this particularly miracles and things of that nature because he didn't believe those things happened. So in his Bible, he's cut out all the passages about the resurrection. That's a sad story. Jesus dies and that's it, right? And so this is kind of that mentality of, I don't really like what he has to say, so I'm just going to remove it altogether. And this is kind of that framework in which deconstruction goes down that road. It's, we don't really like those things, so we're going to disregard them. And so... Notice that this text tells us that on the way to Emmaus, these disciples are talking about everything that had happened. And it doesn't matter that they heard that Jesus had risen from the grave and that the women had confirmed it because that wasn't important to them. They were disappointed and defeated already. And so they didn't care enough to stick around and see if he was actually alive. They had already settled in their hearts what was true. He wasn't the one. And so they are hurt, disappointed, and disillusioned. Now watch what happens next. Verse 15. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And I love this. And if you hear anything, hear this. While they're walking away from Jesus, Jesus is walking along with them. While they're walking away from Jesus, Jesus is walking along with them. And this is the heart of the one who we follow. That even in our rebellion and our pride and our own ways of thinking, as we walk away, he walks with us. This is the heart of the Savior. This is the heart of Jesus. Now, here's what's really important. When Jesus rolls up to these disciples on the road, he's not like, well, 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 look at the ones who don't believe. What are we doing going to Emmaus, gentlemen? You know, he's not, well, 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 look who actually didn't believe the things that I said. He begins just asking them a question. What are you guys doing? What are you doing out here? What's going on? 
And I think this is an important thing for us to understand. Look, guys, there are people who are going to begin down their roads to Emmaus. And there's going to be a temptation within us to want to do one of two things. One, silence, and the other is answers. And these have been the default modes of the church. For example, somebody comes into the community and asks the hard question of, how do we deal with a good God who does X, Y, or Z? And the church is just like, just believe, brother. Terrible response. Because you know what that person's going to go then and do? Go to Google and find an answer of some sort that they could hold on to, which then leads them down another path. The church is most often abdicated on the role of silence. They just haven't said anything. And they've, they've left a generation of people to be swept up in different ideologies. The other side of things is to like overwhelm people with answers. And these are like the hyper-apologetics people. Well, let's start here. If God created the universe, blah, 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 and they start spitting out facts and figures, and there's 10 books and 16 video series you need to watch about how to defend your faith, and there's all the answers, and they give you little note cards that if you were to die today, you know, that whole thing, and they, they get like a formula. And what's, what's missing in both of those things is relationship, and what's missing in both of those is presence. And notice before Jesus gives an answer, before Jesus asks a question, before Jesus does anything, he's just with them on the road. And that's the invitation for us as a church, is not to rush towards silence or towards answers, but to move in presence. Wherever it is you find yourself in your journey of faith this morning, I am with you. Whether you are filled with faith and ready to conquer the things God has for you, or you don't even know if you believe this morning, I'm right here. And this is the posture of Jesus. And so one of the things in the church we need to train ourselves in is in the practice of spiritual consent. Here's what I mean by that. In my pastoral experience, the mistakes I've made in my leadership is I've erred too much on the side of answers. I got afraid when people were starting to have doubts, concerns, reasons, and questions, and so I wanted to overwhelm them with information so that they know that what we believe is true and right. And so I was the guy, you see here on slide 17, you know, whatever it was, and trying to explain, trying to compel them back, not understanding that it's primarily relational, not intellectual. And so what we can tend to do in community is when someone starts to bring doubt forwards, we get afraid and kind of want to smash the doubt down with answers and apologetics and way of viewing the world and intellectual things. But instead, we must learn the practice of spiritual consent, which means asking people, what do they want? When somebody brings to you their doubts and concerns, oftentimes they don't want them to be fixed. They just want you to be present with them. And when you're cramming answers down their throat, it pushes them further away. In my marriage, I am what's known as a fixer. Gents, if you're anything like me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My wife comes to me with a concern, an issue, a problem. So-and-so said this. This and this happened at the store. This is what's going on there. I interpret that as, you have a problem you want my help with. So I say, just tell her this. Just go do this. Don't listen to any of that. And there's a visible disappointment on my wife's face. Because my role and responsibility in that moment is not to be the fix-all guy. It's to shut up and listen. It's to, I can't believe that. What? They didn't give you the discount at TJ Maxx? Oh, fuck. You know? And, and, and instead of being like, just take your receipt back and talk to the lady, it's just be frustrated with her. Just be sad with her. And the women are elbowing their husbands. 
This is the Holy Spirit speaking, you know. But we do this. We want to fix things. And that's how God wired us. That's how God made us. But we need to learn the art of being present. And we do the same thing in the church. People bring their concerns, their issues, their doubts, their struggles forward, and we just want to fix it. Well, there's actually a verse for that in Philippians. And we just start going off and saying, like, dude, I'm sorry. That really stinks. I know that that hurts. And asking permission, what would you like me to do? And they'll tell you, man, I really need some wisdom or advice. Great. Or I just need you to be here for me. Got it. Asking for that spiritual consent to speak into a matter. We must resist the urge to want to fix everything in the body of Christ. The story goes on to say this, verse 17. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. I love this. They're walking with Jesus. Jesus asked them the question. They stop in their tracks Look at him, like, are you kidding me? It says, our, uh, Cleopas responds, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? I want to, you to imagine you're at a checkout line at the grocery store, and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, what's this COVID-19 thing I've been hearing about? You would probably pass out. Where have you been for the year and a half? What do you mean? What do you mean with that? Yeah, what's the people wearing masks? What's going on? You know, if they were clueless, you would be stunned. You'd be shocked. Were you living on a remote island for the last year and a half? Like, what do you mean? You'd be stunned in the same way. This is how they responded to Jesus. Dude, are you the only person alive in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's just gone down? And I love this about Jesus is what Jesus is doing is he's attempting to get beneath the surface with these guys. He asked them a simple question. What are you talking about? Deconstruction is not the root, guys. It's a symptom of something actually happening beneath the surface. Deconstruction is a symptom of something actually happening beneath the surface. We have to actually get what's at the bottom of these conversations around faith. And Jesus had to go to the root reason of why these disciples were walking away. He had to ask them, what conversations are you having? What are you all talking about? To get to the root of why they were leaving. Here is my encouragement to us as a people. It is for us to carry the things that are happening beneath the surface and to bring them to the community of faith. Here's what I tend to see happen. People in our community have doubts, have struggles, have concerns, have questions, and they quietly wrestle with those things. Or they look to YouTube and Google as answers for these problems. Brothers and sisters, understand this. There is great money to be made in the process of deconstruction. There's a famous podcast out right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's rough to listen to. But one of the stories that they follow is a man by the name of Joshua Harris, who was a famous and influential pastor in like the early 2000s. He wrote a really famous book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which if you grew up like in the purity culture movement was like a keystone in all of that. Well, a handful of years ago, he decided that he was no longer going to follow Jesus and began to announce that he was no longer a Christian and he had deconstructed his faith. 
And so a part of this podcast, they kind of follow that story and ask the questions of kind of why that happened. And he was kind of a part of this larger evangelical industrial complex machine thing. There's a lot to be said there. But one of the interesting things that took place is, you know, Joshua got a lot of his uh, fame and his money and all these different things from being a pastor, from speaking, from writing books. And so when the podcast was released, they actually discovered that Josh had released a brand new e-course talking about how to deconstruct your faith that you could buy for $295.99. There is money to be made in deconstruction. There are people who are uh, taking advantage of people's genuine doubts and concerns and looking to say, buy my book, get my class, do my thing, and I will teach you how to deconstruct your faith. There are famous podcasts and videos, and don't believe me, they're out there that are just full-on stepping into this world. In the same way, you have people who are on the prosperity side of things fleecing the flock for money as a way of holding God above their heads. In the same way, you have the exact same thing happening on the opposite side of people fleecing the flock because of the doubts and concerns they know are there. Both are destructive towards the people who hear them. And so my pastoral lean-in here is to carry those things to the community of faith. Bring those things here to the family. Bring your doubts, bring your struggles, bring your questions, bring those things because this is a safe place for you to wrestle with those things. The next thing, if I may, is I want us to kind of diagnose where we're at. So I've kind of created this little sliding scale thing, borrowing this uh, from the work of John Tyson. And so... One of the first questions we have to ask ourselves when we're kind of feeling these different things is first, are you in a season of doubt? Anybody who's been following Jesus longer than five minutes can tell you there are seasons of doubt. Some of them long, prolonged, hard, difficult, challenging. Some of them short, not prolonged. But there are seasons of doubt. And so it's the first question is just to ask that. Am I just right now in a season of doubt? Am I just wrestling through right now whether I believe this for sure or not or is there something actually beneath the surface? The next scale down is what's called the dark night of the soul. A lot of times what happens in apprenticeship to Jesus is there come seasons of life where it feels that God is absent. And a lot of people take that sign of that feeling of God's absence to think of his non-existence but rather his absence is an invitation to press in deeper. And that's what's been come to known as the dark night of the soul, that you feel that God is far from you, but instead of walking away, you press in further. The next step down the sliding scale is, are you beginning the process of deconstruction? Are you starting to pull apart your faith? And the last part is, are you outright denying your faith? Are you saying you no longer believe what the scriptures teach. And it's important at that last area that we don't glamorize or, or make this a virtuous thing because the, the scriptures are clear in what they teach about those who reject the Lord Jesus. And especially those who knew the truth and chose to leave. And so there's a pastoral warning there. But it's for us to discern and diagnose where we are on that scale in community. Notice what happens next. Verse 19. What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. 
but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they did not find his body. They came and told us, and they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. When Jesus asked them this question, it brings to light why they walked away. And these three words, we had hoped. We're disappointed. We're disillusioned. We're distraught. We thought he was this, but he's actually not. And notice that it wasn't about evidence for them, that it wasn't intellectual, that it wasn't something that's happening in the mind. It was something that happened deep in the heart because there was evidence that Jesus was no longer there. So they could have asked the question, then where is he? But they were already wounded from their hopes being let down. Remember, if deconstruction is the symptom, we have to get to the root. What is the cause? And in my pastoral experience, there are primarily four reasons for deconstruction. The first is church hurt. And this is the most common. For a lot of people, they begin to create distance between them and Jesus because of the pe people who have represented Jesus to them. For a lot of people, it looks like a pastor who said something or did something or betrayed trust or broke hearts. It looks like a community of faith that when you came and you brought your struggles and your sin and your worries, you were judged and ridiculed and maligned. It looks like church hurt. And they think, if that's what Jesus is like, I want none of it. It comes from family of origins where you had parents who proclaimed to be followers of Jesus, but your dad was an alcoholic, your mom was verbally abusive, whatever, whatever. And so you're saying, if that's Jesus, I want none of that. And it begins the process of deconstruction. The next one, candidly, and what I see frequently, is straight up bad teaching. There are so many people who are taught of a certain way of reading the scriptures that when they're faced with difficult questions and evidence because of the way they read the scriptures, they think either, either facts or the Bible is true. Both can't be. And end up believing their faith. Not realizing it wasn't the scriptures that was in disagreeing with the facts. It was their interpretation of how the scriptures are to be read and understood. And there's like 15 lectures there. But... That's one thing that I see often. It's just bad teaching. I think a lot of like if you were a Jew growing up in Jesus' time and the way the Pharisees interpreted the law and put that over the people, and then when Jesus comes, he subverts that. And that's actually not what it is. It's this. Bad teaching could have caused people to walk away, wander from the Lord because of the improper interpretation. The next one, which is very common as well, is simply to justify sin. There is something you know that contradicts with the teachings of Jesus, and therefore, because you don't want to obey those things, you walk away. And you hide behind the easy theological arguments of, if there is a really good God, how could X, Y, or Z? Because you know that those are safeguarded things. But if you get to the root of really what it is, it's because you want to sleep with your girlfriend. It's because you want to get drunk with your friends. It's because of whatever the sin looks like. You want to justify your sin, so in doing so, you say, I don't actually believe that there's a God because it's, it's, it's easier that way than to wrestle with the things and teachings that Jesus said. And the last one, candidly, is just cultural pressure. 
We live in a moment where genuine followers of Jesus are not popular. Um, there's a cultural version of Jesus that is popular. It's God, the Bible, guns, America, right? That's popular. If you're in the Bible Belt, it's like it's all one synonymous thing. If you go to a super progressive city and you say the name Jesus, you are like looked at strange. My wife and I were in Portland, and I was wearing my Jesus People shirt, which was just a big old target on my back. And uh, we went to Powell's Bookstore, which is like one of the biggest bookstores in the world. It's awesome. And the dude at the, the checkout was super rude to me, and I could not figure out why. I had this big old stack of Jesus books, and I had this big old Jesus people t-shirt. And he was like super, I was like trying to create conversation. How you doing, man? You know, trying to practice the things I preach and creating moments. And he was just shutting me down, you know? He was having none of it. Like even like tossing things at me, and I was like, did I do something to offend that guy? And then it kind of clicked. Oh yeah, I forgot I'm in Portland, right? You know, this, this is kind of, I'm, I'm over here broadcasting. I represent all the things you hate. Serve me, you know? But there's this cultural pressure around that. When if you're a genuine follower of Jesus, the friends, your friends on the right hate you and the friends on the left hate you because you represent another way. And so there's this cultural pressure to want to just be accepted if we're honest. Like when we have to represent Jesus' teachings on sexuality and gender right now, it's uncomfortable. We don't like that. We don't like the way that that feels. And so there's this cultural pressure to say, well, we can just kind of judo around those things and we can still kind of be together. There's this cultural pressure to conform to where the tide of culture is pushing us. But beneath all of those, it's important to understand this, the root of deconstruction is always relational. They're not rejecting an idea, an intellectual thought, even an amount of evidence they're rejecting a person, and his name is Jesus. It is always fundamentally relational. Notice, here in this story, there was evidence for the resurrection. Intellectually, they could have followed this and went all through the reasons and went and investigated all this stuff, but they didn't. Why? Because they were hurt relationally. And all of these things, fundamentally, what they come down to is a fracturing of relationship. And candidly speaking, faith is hard. Following Jesus is hard. You know what's easier? Going down the road of deconstruction because it gives a temporary relief. I'm not having to wrestle with these really hard questions. I love what Tyson says. He says this, we live in such a therapeutic culture that we do not know how to live with things we don't like. We live in such a time and place that everything is curated to our preferences. So when it comes to the teachings of Jesus, when he confronts you on something, we don't know what to do with it other than ignore it because we do not like it. Brothers and sisters, I am confronted with the teachings of Jesus all the time, and I'm like, I don't like that you said that, right? I don't like that you said I'm called to love and to pray for my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. I wish you said slander them, malign them, make them know that they're the enemy, right? I don't like that teaching. Right? I don't like the teaching of being humble or gentle or any of those things. But when Jesus confronts me on that, it's me learning to live with things I don't like. I don't like that, but I know that it's good or that it's true. And so watch what happens next, verse 25. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things to end and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said and all the scriptures concerning himself. So if the, 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 the cause is for people who are leaving 
or church hurt, bad teaching, justification for sin, then the remedies for those are this. If it's hurt, then it's rest and healing. If it's bad teaching, then it's good teaching. If it's justification for sin, then the remedy is repentance. If it's cultural pressure, then the remedy for that is the crucifixion of desires of the self-image. Let's break those down. When there's been hurt, the invitation is to then get healing, find rest. If there's bad teaching, then the goal and the response and the remedy to that is good teaching, get more theologically sound, astute, biblical teaching. If the reason is to justify sin, then Jesus calls us to repentance. And if it's to, because we get in this cultural pressure, and to be honest, guys, we just all want to be liked, it's the crucifixion of the desire for self-image. No longer obeying the fear of man, but choosing to please God instead. For these disciples, they had to get their bad teaching corrected by Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He finds the root of the problem is, but we had hoped the Messiah was going to be what we thought he was going to be, a political leader and ruler who would institute law underneath Israel again. But that's not who Jesus was, and that's not who the Messiah was. He was coming to inaugurate a different kingdom. So Jesus says, let me explain to you who I am. And he goes throughout all the scriptures, and he teaches them. And right at that moment, they believe, right, wrong. It's moving in the right direction, but they still do not believe. And so when Jesus fully explains who he is, what his heart's like, and what his intentions are, they still don't believe. So watch what happens next. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. I love this little detail. This is free. It's not a part of the sermon. That Jesus pretend like he was going further, even though the whole reason he was on the road was for these two disciples. Well, guys, I'm this way still. Safe travel. See you later. I'm really going now, I promise, you know. And then at that moment, they urged Jesus to come with them. No, 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 it's getting late. There's coyotes on the road or whatever, right? No, Jesus, just come, hang out with us. Not Jesus, you guy, come and hang out with us. Stay with us, it's almost evening, the day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. If you insist. And when he was at the table with them, this happens. He takes the bread, he gives thanks, and he breaks it, and he divides it among them, and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Jesus began by explaining who he was, and it began with this conviction, this stirring that, is this him? But it still wasn't sure until communion. And this is the beautiful reality. The resurrection didn't solve anything, everything, but his presence did. And it was once Jesus shared a meal with them, they realized who he was. And there's so much to be said there. But it was only in the act of communion that they saw Jesus for who he actually was. And I think nothing speaks more to the reason he came than that. Lastly is this. They got up at once and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those with them and assembled together and saying, It is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened and how Jesus recognized them when he broke bread. 
The goal for those who deconstruct is to reconstruct back a flourishing relationship with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, here's the reality. Genuine faith is not clean, cut, and dry. It's messy. It's filled with seasons. Seasons of wrestling with God and seasons of hope. And we must learn how we walk through each of these seasons. What if I told you that these seasons we experience as crises of faith were not signs of a weak faith, but actually evidence of a real faith and an invitation to press in deeper to Jesus? I love this story, and I'll invite worship back up and Ash, our host, back up to lead us in the rest of this time together, but This is the heart of Jesus. It's not to be cruel and judgmental, but to be merciful to those who doubt, to be merciful to those who are in the process of walking away from him. And I think if the church were to take Jesus' lead on this, we'd see all those things we talked about at the beginning of the sermon reversed. Right now, statistically speaking, the generations coming up, Gen Z, the bottom of millennial, are the least likely to attend church. It's pure, it's facts, it's in all the data. And so when I think about our church, I get really excited about what God is seems to be stirring and doing here. And there's this invitation for us to become a community who models this well. This method of walking with people through stuff. I think a lot of times the church has taken the posture of trying to fix everything by telling people, don't doubt, just believe. Or, here are the 37,000 reasons why you can believe in God instead of just being with people, walking with them through things, asking them really important questions and being available for the responses they give back. And so... Um, we would just want to enter right now into a time of response. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into that. Jesus, thank you for your word. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.